it wasn't just the Lehman Brothers hit the wall. It was the recognition that all of them hit the wall at the same time. You weren't bailing out the banks, you were bailing out the whole system. Before we dive in, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Matrix Sport, the sponsor of this week's episode and one of the fastest growing, largest digital asset platforms based out of Asia. More on them soon to come. All right, Miss Pippa Malgram, welcome to On The Margin. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yes, yeah, I'm very excited. Um, so I'm actually going to start us off here with a quote of yours uh, that I listened to. It, it was actually difficult to figure out where to start. Uh, I had Jeff Snyder on this podcast last last week, and it was like there's so much information in his brain uh, that it's like almost difficult to know where to start. And it's the same thing with you. There are so many topics that we could cover. Uh, but you use this um, metaphor back in this interview that you did last April. You said, this is going to sound strange, but the economy is a lot like a human COVID-19 patient. Vulnerability is largely a function of pre-existing conditions. So just as if you had asthma, you are more vulnerable. Uh, for the economy, we were burdened by record debt, a lot of leverage and uncertainty. So fast forward 18 months, where do you think we sit in terms of the economy today? Yeah, so in keeping with the analogy, one of the things I realized during COVID was people learned how to have meetings remotely, but they didn't learn how to make decisions remotely. Okay, <laughs> yep. So you can have all these meetings and on Zoom and stuff, but actually, are you really biting down on the decision? Um, so like a patient who keeps checking their temperature, but they don't actually go in to see the doctor about the problem because it's just a little bit too hard. And mm. so what's happening now as the lockdowns start to roll off, and I'm going to talk more about Britain in this context. I think the U.S. is a little different. But, but generally speaking, I think people are coming back to work and they are terrified because they know now they have to face the music. Now they have to really face the reality and make a decision which is really hard. Um, so rather than being a buoyant, boisterous um, moment of celebration, it's more like uh, a recognition that everybody's got PTSD and they're all scared, right? And if you yeah. say, and if you say, you know, just like a returning military vet and, you know, a motorcycle backfires and they literally hit the deck. It's kind of the same with people in the economy where, you know, all you have to do is say, well, we haven't looked at that in a while. And they're like, ah, scared, terrified, because it is going to be frightening seeing what the reality is. And uh, so in that sense, we, we've gotten through the, the just like a patients in COVID, we're just beginning to now really understand who got into intensive care and maybe who isn't out of intensive care yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's that triage process which took a while with humans, it's taking longer with economies. Yeah, absolutely. One, one thing that kind of stands out to me is, um, it's almost like, how would you define a growing and prosperous economy? Because on the one hand, right, uh, the stock market, at least over here in the US, is doing quite well, right? And that's led a lot of people to say, hey, we're in this booming economy. Certainly our last president tended to equate uh, the stock market and the economy is being kind of the same thing. Although I think many of us who are in the economy would look around and say, hey, there are some actual warning signs and kind of cracks forming. So for you, when you're thinking about like, what are the metrics that you pay attention to, to measure uh, a prosperous economy? What does that really look like for you? 
Yeah. Well, uh, by the way, every president uses the stock market, uh, <laughs> right. the, you know, unless it's going against them and then they'll come up with excuses. But if it's going well, it's always, you know, they're doing and a sign that everything's Economy's fine. Economy's booming, baby. That's right. And um, and again, it's different for the U.S. than other parts of the world because the U.S. is a much more capitalist economy than almost anywhere else. So people like to equate the stock market with the general health, which uh, isn't true because not everybody's an owner of the stock market, to say the least. Mm. So I think one of the things that's really uh, interesting and important is that we've come through a couple of decades where there was one overarching narrative that defined what was going on in the world economy. Like you could say, globalization. What does it mean? It means basically China is the most competitive at everything and all the jobs are moving to China. And we knew for almost for 30 years that that trend was real. Today, there are multiple narratives. So that's why I've been calling it the quantum recovery um, for physicists. You know, what I mean is you can have a lot of things happening simultaneously. The cat's dead, the cat's alive. Um, You know, you can see uh, so much creative destruction and creative creation, right? Both at the same time. So I think the stock market is correct. It is built to discount the future and it is Mm -hmm. discounting a future that's vastly more efficient because of digitization, because of the epic amount of money that's been thrown in the system, because COVID has forced people to reevaluate their business plans and business models. But at the same time, uh, it's also uh, a period of mass destruction of beliefs, of ideas in the economy, not just the economy itself, but your belief in it is, is also being destroyed. So to get people used to a multiple narrative environment, no one narrative defines this. If you are a pessimist, you are definitely going to find the 1930s. And if you're an optimist, you're definitely going to find the 1920s, right? Mm-hmm. And they can happen at the same time. And that's why, And by the way, that's what did happen in the 1920s in the United States. You had one group of people who were drinking champagne and one group of people who were literally displaced permanently from the economy. So we have to get used to a world where there are multiple truths happening simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. And the economy certainly isn't one um one entity that you can characterize. There are certainly swaths of the economy that can be doing better than others. Um, Pippa, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. I'm going to tell you a quote. and I want you to see if you can identify where this quote came from. Okay. Okay. Um, What preoccupies me is a deeper question. Since World War II, the driver of growth throughout the world for most countries was world trade. Many countries didn't have sufficient income and domestic wealth to grow except at maybe one to 2%. But By getting by on the express train of exports, they could rely on demand in other countries. So we had trade-powered growth for almost 50 years, but now we're in a paradigm shift. I think we are now headed towards a localization and a secular decline in almost everything physical and shipping. That wouldn't be my dad, would it? It is your dad. It is your dad in an interview from like two and a half years ago. Yeah. Like my dad. Yeah, which was a lovely interview. I enjoyed that so much. So I was like... For for context, we should tell the the listeners. So my dad was the basically the chief trade negotiator for the United States under Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. And uh, so he's like walking, talking institutional memory on this particular subject. And one of the things we've been jamming a lot about, riffing about 
during lockdown is the changing definition of globalization. So using the old definition, he's right. I use a newer definition. So mm -hmm. the old definition is basically all the jobs are going to China. Mm -hmm. And so that globalization has come to an end for many reasons. And I think it was way before COVID. China stopped being competitive. It just literally became the wages went up. Um, the belief system of the Chinese worker changed because in the old days they were absolutely willing to work for nothing today in the belief that they would be rich in future. They don't believe that anymore. So now they're like, no, you got to pay me now. Um, yep. They're becoming more realistic or they had become more realistic. So that means that we don't have that version of globalization. But I think we have a new and better one, which is that all the jobs are going everywhere because actually there are lots of places that are competitive now, even here in the UK, in engineering, um, in um, manufactured goods. The UK and the US are totally competing with China really well. Mm -hmm. and. Is that so terrible? Now, what it means is the base cost level for the world economy has gone up. That's true, because we don't have the marginal additional emerging market worker willing to work for ever less. They've hit their limit on how much they're willing to work for. But you know what? We shouldn't have a world economy that's based on you know total exploitation of the person who's the most vulnerable and their belief that maybe I'll be rich someday, so I'll work my tail off today. Maybe it's better that that our cost base in the world has gone up a bit, but so has our value of human life and 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 the work uh, life of those people. Completely, I completely agree. I, you know, what I was talking about this with actually Jeff Snyder last week is basically there's kind of a natural tension in between being the issuer of a, a reserve currency that's being used by the globe and the issuer of a domestic currency. And I'd be curious, like, I actually wish I'd given the, the listeners more uh, background on you, but one of the great things about you, Pippa, is that you have this great understanding of what's going on in the government and can kind of talk to that perspective and in markets and can kind of talk to the financial perspective as well. And one thing that I kind of think about is uh, I'll give credit to our, our lead editor, uh, Tyler Neville, who kind of talks about this tension between capital and labor. And I think if you look at like kind of the post-Reagan uh, era, you can kind of look at a lot of what's going on from the policy decision of favoring capital over labor. And you can kind of just look at wage growth in the U.S. as being relatively stagnant over that period. And I'm curious, like, do you see a lot of what's going on in the world as being a result of kind of that favoring? And if so, do you see it reversing anytime soon? Uh, yeah, I love this observation. I would take it a step further. Um, mm. and something I've been writing about since about 2015 is, um, you know, normally the role of government is to not favor one group over another, mm -hmm. right? So when we talk about central banks um, having price stability as their objective, what it means is they shouldn't be leaning in the one direction or the other. It's a balance. But I think it's an even bigger issue. It's that governments have chosen to um, favor the interests of the speculators over the savers. And that's that's a that's a slightly broader concept than than what you mentioned. And the problem is that this causes society to become unbalanced. And that is exactly what we're seeing. And of course, once you favor the interests of the speculators, how do you go back? Because now right. the speculators will have to take a hit. So instead, we just keep bailing out the speculators and keep asking the savers to basically pay for that and work harder and and so 
this is a really bad alley that policymakers have ended up in. And that's why we get the so-called um, taper tantrums, right? If they try to raise interest rates even a little bit, everyone has a heart attack, which, by the way, is kind of nuts, too, because what should happen is that once you feel the economy really is capable of bearing, uh, of, of holding itself up, rate hikes should affirm the growth, confirm right. the growth. And stock markets normally go up on initial rate hikes because they're like, oh, okay, everything's fine. And if you're raising rates like once or twice and the whole economy falls to pieces, that was a mistake. You shouldn't be raising rates then. But once you start, it, it actually, and it's going to be messy in this case because there's so much uncertainty. But I do think that ultimately we're going to find that the early rate hikes get a volatile response, but ultimately people go, well, it, we should be able to bear higher interest rates because we're back on our feet again. I think, do, do you think that, I mean, one uh, kind of argument that has really resonated with me is that because almost policy has um, favored speculators over savers for such a long period of time, that the stock market has essentially become the de facto savings vehicle for folks in the United States. And it seems like what folks at the top are saying is, hey, the stock market is safe. Put your money in the stock market. And once you make that decision from the top, it's so hard to go back from that because now not only do you have kind of the really wealthy kind of 0.1% at the top having most of their savings invested in the stock market, you have the bottom, right? So if you are, if that were to ever reverse course, suddenly you have a full-scale potential uprising on your hands. Do you agree with that kind of sentiment? Yeah, and it goes even further because, you know, everyone's pension is in right. the stock market. Even if it isn't their direct investment, their retirement is caught up in the stock market. And so the vicissitudes of the stock market define, you know, what what will or will not be possible. Mm -hmm. And so that's not a very balanced situation to be in. Um, on the other hand, the best way to pull an economy out of a nosedive is to invest actually not in stocks, but in startups, because mm -hmm companies learned less than 50 people that um, generate like two thirds of the net new jobs in most economies, if not more. Um, and interestingly, most pension funds can't touch startups because they're quote, too risky. So they'll put you in the risky stock market, but not in the one thing that actually would generate the jobs in the economy and cause it to progress, which is like this weird paradox. Oh my God, this was crazy. So when, when the pandemic first hit back in March, um, and all of those policies kind of came, right? There were obviously the PPP loans here in the U.S. that did bail out smaller corporations, so the larger ones took advantage as well. And then there were kind of those just direct bailouts of things like the airlines and stuff like that. And I remember thinking, well, it makes sense that uh, the government is trying to bail out bigger corporations. It might not seem fair, but ultimately they're the producers of jobs at the end of the day. But then I looked this up, and actually two-thirds of jobs in the U.S. is still from small business. And I was like... How are you favoring big companies? Then I was really like, wow, that does tell you something about where their heads are at, actually. And also uh, because small companies generate most of the new innovation as well. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, if you want to see where innovation comes from, it's always companies that are like only 10 people. You know, uh, Apple is a great example. They, they even describe themselves as really a roof. And underneath mm -hmm. that roof, they got all these 10 person companies that are all competing with each other and that's how they maintain the competitive edge. So, so yeah, it's a really interesting question why we don't have 
official policy and structures that permit capital to flow to the smaller entrepreneurs. And we have this obsession with Silicon Valley that small business nobody's interested in. Oh, but a startup that goes from an idea to unicorn status, yeah, everybody wants that. But how many of them are there? There's so few that actually occur. And how many going concerns are there that hold families together, that keep communities going? A lot. But oh there's no capital for them. Yeah. You know what's an interesting story there, Pippa? I'd be curious if you have thoughts on this. But uh, I actually wrote something last week about I think one of the components of this actually is kind of the death of the regional small banking model. Yeah. And if you look at the way that uh, financial risk has been shored up, quote unquote, in the eyes of regulators over the last 40 years, is the uh, centralization and consolidation of big financial institutions. And you've essentially wiped out um, those small regional banks that used to have local ties in the communities, used to give l- loans out to entrepreneurs. So instead, if you're, if you're a startup, basically the funding that you have access to is these VCs, and they don't want you to do a little grow even 100% a year type business. They want 100x or bust, you know? And it just, it creates this weird dichotomy. Um, I don't know if you, you have thoughts on that as well. I do. I personally think it dates to one decision. I mean, this is a vast oversimplification, but I, for me, the landmark decision was um, during the Clinton administration when Robert Rubin decided uh, to let, and Bill Clinton, to let Citibank become Citigroup. Mm. That was the moment that banks became publicly listed holding companies um, instead of, and that's kind of the period as well that the Goldman Sachs shifted from being a uh, privately owned entity where partners had not just a stake in the business, but um, their fortune would suffer if they made mistakes, like they had personal losses. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we shifted these organizations to being limited liability companies. So see when you move from a partnership where you have skin in the game to a limited liability company where you're like, well, it's just the shareholder money. This totally changes your behaviors and your incentives. And I think those two things happened and this profoundly moved capital away from the old-fashioned lending, and that there's another piece to this as well, which is also a sense of the community. And we're, this is a period of history when we've been moving into this notion that everything can be done by mathematical analysis. The algorithms are more dependent, dependable than the humans. So the fact that George, who you've known in the community for 30 years, We know George has a great business and everyone goes to George's shop, whatever that is. And we support him because we know George, right? And the bank Mm. manager, of course, lends money to George, right? George is gone. And and that's at the personal level for mortgages. That's at the business level for you're trying to run your diner or whatever. The minute we automated all the decision-making about who gets capital, and it was based on metrics rather than humans... That also profoundly changed who gets capital. You know, when they made the decision, what they thought they were doing was turbocharging the the banking sector to provide better products at lower prices. They did not think they were socializing the risk. But what happened as a result of that decision is that the biggest banks all started merging 
And we ended up with the too big to fail situation, or as a lot of central bankers put it, uh, too big to manage. That you'd have these institutions literally that no one person can know what the heck is on the balance sheet or where is the risk. Yeah. And that's how you end up with the financial crisis is nobody knows, no one person knows yeah. where is the risk in the institution. And then it comes and then suddenly it wasn't just the Lehman Brothers hit the wall. It was the recognition that all of them hit the wall at the same time. Mm. And that's why you had to bail it out. It, it wasn't you weren't bailing out the banks. You were bailing out the whole system yeah. um, because they were all too big to fail. They were too big to manage. Risk taking in finance is kind of a funny thing. Right. Like you, especially being in uh, crypto, which we can talk about later, I'm now very convinced that you get paid for your ability to stomach risk over periods of time and volatility. And in banking and finance, I think the concept is probably not too different from that. So obviously, like banks want to take risk because that will lead to profit. But like for me, I'm the co-founder of a media company, Blockworks, right? If I take a whole bunch of risk and I take too much risk and I go bust shame on me, right? That kind of impacts my business. But these banks, as you're saying, as they become more and more systemically important, mm -hmm. they have the same incentive that they want to take that risk because that should lead to profits over a period of time, theoretically smart risk, but they don't have, they can't go bust because access to credit and financing is, is like a utility for the economy, mm -hmm. right? It impacts everyone else. I think Colin Roche actually said this, like, you don't want your business to fail because Bank of America and JP Morgan are scared to talk to each other. That just feels bad, right? That just feels like that shouldn't happen. So yeah, there's just this weird incentive structure uh, baked in there. Yeah, you're talking about moral hazard. And yes. Yeah. That's, that's what's been created by, a, it's not any one decision, it's a series of events and decisions over time. Uh, and now no one knows how to remove that moral hazard from the system. But having said that, there is this new wave of uh, innovation in finance and the whole DeFi um, movement. Yes. And what it's effectively doing is introducing much more rigorous business models. Uh, it's disrupting these old banks. It's forcing them to raise their game. Uh, it's it's democratizing the access to finance by taking the sort of middleman out of the equation. Um, digitization is also uh, part of that phenomena. So, ironically, you know, when you favor the old guard so much with your moral hazard, you literally sow the seeds for these. Um, you know, these green shoots of new ways of doing things that are actually better. So it kind of, in a Schumpeterian way, starts to take care of itself. And that creative destruction and creative creation is, is underway. Yeah, absolutely. I am, um, you know, again, referring back to that interview that you did uh, with your dad back in, I think it was 2018 or 2019. Um, but, you know, you were kind of talking about, well, where do we uh, kind of move forward from here? Because right? you're talking about kind of if there is this localization and decline in world trade, uh, the, the way your dad, I'm going to paraphrase here, basically said, look, what uh, the kind of bringing these manufacturing jobs back to the U.S., like getting jobs back in Detroit, 
that's most likely not going to happen. Uh, so instead, we kind of need to look forward towards this new paradigm. And what he actually said was maybe that's built around a digital empire or a crypto coin, which props to you, how very forward thinking for a guy your age. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'd be curious to think like, because I have been extremely interested recently what's going on in DeFi actually plug. We just launched uh, the largest DeFi conference in the world, Permissionless. You should all go check it out. Uh, but I'm very curious, like, how do you view this new space? Like, what is it about it that excites you? Yeah. Well, first, let me jump back to Detroit because mm -hmm. what, in fact, has happened to Detroit is it's on fire. Like, Detroit is a happening place. <laughs> and jobs did come back to Detroit, but they haven't been in the same field there. Mm. It's now a music center again. It's got a tourism travel industry. It's had huge uh, uh, sort of, um, uh, what do you call it? The neighborhoods have all been upgraded. A lot of capital went in. And that's a lot to do with the fact that they declared themselves bankrupt. And once mm -hmm. you declare bankruptcy, it clears the decks and then suddenly you can invest again. Mm -hmm. And that's what people have done. So this assumption, this is really, really important because what happens, it, this is a thing I call situational awareness. People will get an idea in their head and then they think it's a permanent thing. So mm -hmm. like, oh, the jobs are moving to China. Yeah, that, that already indicates you are 30 years out of date, at least 15. If you say, like you just did, if you go, well, Detroit, you know, they're up the creek, their history. Actually, no, you know, there's been incredible rejuvenation of that space. Mm. So we have this awful tendency to not update our core beliefs, which need to change based on the facts. So that's, that's one thing. The second thing is this whole area of, um, the digitization of money, which is really what this is about. Um, and people have come to think that Bitcoin means crypto, uh, but no, I think there are well over 1500 different cryptocurrencies now. And now we're getting a new wave of types of money, which is digital sovereign, um, mm. which isn't crypto, but it is digital. And now we're gonna see some interesting competition between sovereign digital, um, and private digital and mm. how they interplay or don't with each other. But whatever, it's all digitization of money. And that has so many ramifications for the economy. Like we, we can try and go through it, but there's a long list of what, what the implications are. Howdy guys. Excited to talk to you a little bit about this week's sponsor, Matrixport. If you're like me, you're trying to figure out how can I make my crypto go as far as it possibly can. Well, Matrixport makes it really easy to do the simple stuff like just buying and trading and you're holding your crypto on a secure platform that you don't have to worry about. But they also help you take that next step to doing things like getting loans against your crypto or earning yield on it. Let's talk about the yield part because for me, that earn feature is the most interesting thing that they do. Number one, first step, you can start earning up to 30% APY on your USDC deposits. That's about... 29.99% more than if you just kept those funds in a bank account. Talk about a no-brainer. Number two, their team walked me through this. They have made accessing DeFi easy. And guys, I am telling you, I am the biggest Luddite on the face of the earth. If I can understand this stuff, then I promise, so can you. So don't wait. At least go check them out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. One thing that I'd love to, love to talk to you about is like, if we return back to that uh, 
that great metaphor that you gave us in the in the beginning here about the U.S. economy as a COVID nineteen patient. You said that the pre existing conditions then were uh, kind of the amount of debt and leverage in the system. Um, you know, looking forward eighteen months from where we were then, it seems like those uh, conditions have only gotten exacerbated, right? Despite mm-hmm. where the stock market is at, um, I don't know. Like, I tend to I'm this as we're recording. My computer is perched on top of Ray Dalio's big debt crises. Um, So I really like his uh, general framework for this, right? He kind of talks about uh, the short term and the long term debt cycle. And basically over these kind of 80 year phases, you have these accumulations of uh, credit, right, that eventually kind of get deleveraged. And he's got all these great case studies and points these time in history when this happened. In general, it does, at least to me looking at it, seem like the level of debt that we currently have is unsustainable. Do you see like a deleveraging kind of in the future? How do you just think about kind of wealth redistribution, economic deleveraging, all that kind of stuff in general? Yeah, well, remember John F. Kennedy thought that we had a debt problem that was so huge it could never be resolved. And, you know, little did he know how big it could become. So I actually think that this isn't, um, it's not a fixed number. Mm. And in fact, it's, it's really not fixed in the sense of the more money you chuck at the economy, the more the debt burden uh, or your ability to bear the debt burden, your ability to to live with a stock market that goes much higher than you ever imagined changes, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, people are like, well, the, the stock market can't go above and they'll, they'll pick some number out of thin air. But they don't remember the days when Dow above 10,000 was impossible Crazy. to imagine. Right. That was insane, you know, that gives away my age, but you know. <laughs> So actually, it can go, there are no constraints on where it can go, except in our own um, belief systems and our imagination. And that's why the, your one your imagination about these things is of crucial importance. And people always stop when I say that. They're like, wait, what? How can imagination be crucial in finance? But it's about coming up with creative solutions to these issues. Right. Um, and, and I'll use an example. I, I, it's my favorite one. I always use it. Um, but it is John F. Kennedy when he thought, I've got such a big debt problem. I'm just going to tax all of the um, U.S. dollar bonds that are issued. And mm-hmm. that'll help me earn revenue to reduce that problem. And a couple of young guys working for Morgan Stanley in London went, well, what if we just sold those same corporate bonds out of London and then they don't attract the tax? And that was the origin of what is now the trillion dollar euro bond market. That is nothing huh. more than an act of imagination. That's all that is. If you go back, you look at Brady bonds, you know, which were used to manage the Latin American debt crisis. It was but impossible to manage it without them. How did they come about? Uh, they imagined it. They literally, you, this is a thing. It, it requires a lot of creative imagination work to get the economy back where you want it to be. It's not like based in the fact of Mm. the number. It's more your creative process about how to work with that. Yeah, absolutely. And it also, you know, it kind of depends, like generally when you go through these big, um, whatever you want to call either deleveragings or or however you want to phrase it, there needs to be some kind of catalyst to summon uh, political will as well. Like it's hard to make a big change just out of nowhere, right? And then there's kind of that that phrase, which comes from politics, but it applies to financial markets as well. You never want to let a good crisis go to waste, right? Um, 
So when I when I kind of think about COVID in general, I, I'd, I'd love to get your take on this. I actually feel like we might have ate it a little bit from both sides of that equation. And what I mean from that is, you know, the political aspects of COVID, at least I see the long-term political ramifications being people have gotten much more comfortable with this idea of a surveillance type state. Um, and you had people before... I'm not, I actually think governments, this was a really difficult situation for any government to handle. I don't begrudge how almost anyone handled it, but I do think it was easier to get 7 billion people to stay inside their homes than anyone would have previously thought. And I've just anecdotally noticed a lot more people are like, hey, the government should be able to track where you're going to prevent this kind of thing. And that's just, that's a, people don't tend to think in presence. That's a dangerous long-term precedent, in my opinion, to set. And then on the other hand, I think you had the ability from a financial perspective to say, hey, um, that even though there is a lot of imagination, that the debt levels are still pretty high. Maybe this is a good, this is kind of cloud cover for us to reset and write off some of this bad debt. And because we just gave money, nobody really did that either. So I'd be curious, like, how do you feel that all went? Do you agree with that statement? Am I off base and just being pessimistic? Yeah, no. Well, the term for this is surveillance capitalism. Right. And it's happening globally. Uh, the Chinese have their own version of it with their social credit system, where, they, you know, you actually um, feel the impact of your decisions. Because if you hang out with the wrong people, or you express opinions that are counter to what the government likes, uh, if you don't pay your bills on time, these all show up in your score and suddenly you go to buy an airplane ticket and you can't mm -hmm. um, because it's effectively also creating digital prisons. So they'll, they'll lock you into a physical space because your behaviors weren't what they wanted to see. That's one extreme version of it. But frankly, we do this in the West as well. In the U.S., we've just privatized the judging function. Mm -hmm. And so Google does it and Amazon does it and Facebook does it and <laughs> You know, it's uh, but it's the same thing. It's scoring you based on your behaviors. And I think people haven't understood what are, what are the consequences of this. And one of the dangers I see um, is uh, it it the algorithms start to be like sheepdog and the algorithms corral us all into similar behaviors. And the problem with that is the lack of diversity also means the lack of innovation and progress. Mm. Um, and that's why I love this quote from Frank Zappa, where he always talks about, you know, if you want progress, you have to deviate from the norm because that's where progress comes from. But we're creating societies where any deviation from the norm is actually mathematically penalized. And I, uh -huh. I think we haven't begun to think about this as part of a bigger issue, which is the digitization of every person, uh, every place, everything, but particularly persons, means I have a digital twin, you have a digital twin, and it knows more about me and yours knows more about you than we know about ourselves. Mm. And some people have access to that digital twin. I don't, for example, how does Citigroup see me? I don't know, because I don't have access to what data City has on me. But is city in a position to make decisions about me, like how much credit should I be allocated or am I at risk of getting a divorce? Uh, I don't know, like so many different things that, that if decisions are being made about you, then you should have some way of knowing. 
So now there's a big push for data to be not Google's or Apple's or whoever's. It's for it to be yours. Yep. And then you can see what you look like. And, and like a credit score. Just like in the old days, nobody had a credit score. And we can't imagine that now because how did we fly blind? But I think people should be entitled to see their digital twin score. And then that would ease off the concerns about... Um, surveillance capitalism being a threat to democracy. But it doesn't eliminate them altogether. I think it's the wild west of our generation is the digital space where there are literally no, there's virtually no laws, no rules, no codes of behavior. And, and that has to be sorted out. Yeah, absolutely. I want to draw a comparison here and I'm very curious to get your perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so in the same way that there's been consolidation and centralization in financial services. And you can argue that that kind of indirectly led to the creation of something like Bitcoin. That That's what kind of made people label it a monetary phenomenon. But on the other side of things, there is this great centralization of data and company, essentially platform companies that monetize people's personal data. Um, and I think that has actually led to the creation of um, this new paradigm of like ownership over your own data, which I actually see as being a crypto phenomenon. And there are lots of companies that are essentially working on, and it's kind of in the ethos of the space as well, which you've probably heard those phrases, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Yeah, that's, that's great. It applies to money. I believe in that uh, ethos. But I think you could also take that and apply that to your own data. And essentially, um, one of the most interesting things that I've heard about uh, kind of decentralized finance in general is... I'm going to borrow someone else's explanation here, but basically like if you were creating a new financial product, your way of doing that is you go and work at Goldman Sachs for like 30 years, then you can create this kind of esoteric thing that you can sell to institutions and maybe some of them will buy it. But now what you actually have is this developer first sandbox, right? Where anyone in the world can kind of ship code and it can get approved. And the big thing is you own your data and you're plugging into these systems. So you could almost imagine a world, like the difference would be right now, for a social network, you go onto Facebook, you post photos on Facebook, they own those photos. It, that might not be explicitly stated, but try porting all your photos over from Facebook and like bring it to another platform. It's impossible. The new imagined concept of this world of crypto is you actually, in a wallet, you would own your photos, whatever information that you want to go into a social profile, and you could easily port it from one thing to another. And to me, that has profound implications just about businesses, platform models in general. And it's highly disruptive because if that becomes the norm and that's what people demand, how could Facebook ever respond to something like that? It would be really yeah. difficult. Yeah, I think it is where we're going for sure. Uh, and I know lots of people personally who are building these structures. I don't think it's a crypto phenomena, though it gets expressed in these in the notion of a crypto wallet. Uh, I think it's something different because it's not only about money as well. It's about all your digital data. Mm. Um, and I see it happening in healthcare as well, enormously, where you're going to soon be able to um, take take your own measurements mm. uh, and own that data and then share it with your healthcare professionals uh, as you like, depending on where you are in the world. And um, so 
I want to say it's a blockchain phenomena, but I don't want to say that because I think that blockchain, we're going to look back and say it was, it was a wonderful initial approach, but rudimentary, very slow, and we're going to get innovation on what we now call blockchain. And I don't just mean the company blockchain. I mean the concept of blockchain, right. although the company blockchain has been a massive success and will continue to be, I suspect. I think they're going for a listing this next year and that'll be huge it'll be massive but um the concept of blockchain and so that's why i've been watching things like hedera hashgraph mm. uh which apparently are vastly faster and can process more data but they won't share their code with anybody so everybody's uneasy like what am i really buying owning if it isn't open source and there's a new phenomena called gpt3 which is um, worthwhile looking up because that's about no longer needing to be a coder to create the code. Mm. It's about being able to code in plain English and create all sorts of things uh, without needing to be a technical expert. It's literally going to disintermediate coders, um, maybe not right away, but ultimately. And uh, so there's a lot of movement in this space, but fundamentally, yes, data is going to be uh, a, a personal right rather than something that you don't even know what it is, let alone get paid for the value of it. Yeah. So Pippa, I listen to a lot of um, kind of financially uh, macro focused podcasts and, you know, and, and a lot of, I just consume a lot of content in general. And there's a lot of almost like doom and gloom type stuff. That seems to be a general vibe. Like, hey, the economy is in trouble. A lot of the stuff that we were just talking about that I was just saying, debt levels are extremely high. You are doing a lot of really cool work kind of uh, out on the cutting edge. Um, talk to me a little bit about what makes you optimistic? Like what kind of gets you up in the morning and you're like, I am excited and I think the world or the economy is turning into a better place. Like what really gets you going and excites you? Yeah, uh, well, and this is partly why I'm, I'm part of a uh, startup incubator called the Monaco Foundry, um, because that's all we're doing is going and finding cool startups. Mm. Look, it, there are all these people around the world who have a real genuine desire to make the world a better place. They all have an interesting idea about how to do that. Some of them have the capacity to execute. And the ones who do, look at how amazing, look, look at the amazing changes they can bring, right? And some of them we see very visibly. Like, you know, when I worked at Bankers Trust, which is, you know, people don't remember the name now, but it used to be an investment bank. Um, the year before I joined, they had a guy who left to start a little startup. And he was really known in the bank as being the super bright guy and no one could understand like why was he now like operating out of a closet building like a bookstore and his name <laughs> was Jeff Bezos, right? So, you yeah. know, people have been able to all by themselves with armed with a vision, a little bit of skill, create something out of nothing. And when I say that, people are constantly creating something out of nothing. And they're like, no, 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 you can't create something out of nothing. Yes, you can. Virtually mm -hmm. nothing. You don't need that much capital anymore to launch businesses. You don't need, um, you know, you can bring together dream teams more easily than ever before. Post-COVID, post-Zoom, we're going to see a whole new model for 
bringing together global dream teams because people are comfortable working the way you and I are working right now on the podcast, which totally. is remotely. So uh, imagine the upgrade in the quality of teams. Uh, and I'm actually going to be in that. So I'm launching a startup of my own in that space because I feel so strongly that, you know, it's like careers are different. It used to be that LinkedIn made sense because people's career were sequential. What's your job now? Here it is. What was your last job? There it was. What was the one before? And they were static. Like, there you are with a job title. Today, people have these portfolio careers. It's totally dynamic. They're doing three or four things at the same time that are complementary. Um, and so that's a more fluid environment where your chances of succeeding with any one idea are higher than ever before. So I just, I just see so many people building cool stuff. And it's genuinely making the world a better place. So how can you fight that? You're like, it's it's totally happening. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I'd love to get your opinion on so if if you think about even this this chat, right? Like this this Zoom chat that we're doing. On the one hand, you could consider that like a big leap in productivity, right? Because it's just you and me. We don't need anyone else. Like there's no producers involved, et cetera. That greatly reduces cost and then we can produce more of these, et cetera. But on the other hand, there used to be like kind of jobs around this, right? Like we don't need as much of a producer. Reed, I know you still produce this. Shout out Reed uh, and Evan uh, who helped me out with this. Uh, but basically like – yeah, like uh, – <laughs> Overall, though, like the amount of labor that goes into this is less. So I'd be curious, and like, or, and this is a micro example of what's happening, kind of on a on a really grand or, or very large scale. So when you kind of look towards um, the next, however long, ten or twenty or fifty years of uh, kind of what's going to drive new job creation, what's going to help bring up wages, especially in more developed countries like the U.S. and stuff like that, where, where do you see that kind of avenue? So this is what my next book is, is about. I'm writing now. And nice. uh, it's, again, it's, I'm going to bring you back to imagination. Mm -hmm. So I think that, first of all, automation, robotics, everyone says this is a job killer. But, but we had the first automated robotic tool introduced in, what, 1830 with the weaving loom and we've had nothing but more ever since. And just before COVID happened, we had record level employment globally. So it doesn't make any sense to say that robotics and automation equal loss of jobs because we had record employment in the U S before COVID happened. So how do you have both at the same time answer? Because the, you're creating new jobs all the time, yeah. right? No one who imagined that being a, running a podcast, would pay anyone and, and be a job 20 years ago. Almost nobody, but here we are. And that's the same with the stock market. If you look at the top 10 companies in the stock market, the ones from the previous decade are literally all gone. And the ones that are big now, you're like, they will always be here, of course. Mm. And then a decade later, they're all gone too. It's a hugely fluid, moving thing. So that's that's one part of the answer. But there's a second thing. And that is, I do think we are mean reverting and the economy is mean reverting. And so we've gone through a phase of history where we were into more and more mass production, more and more mass consumption and maybe COVID, but maybe without COVID, people now are questioning their consumption. They're going, why am I working these crazy hours, killing myself, getting on planes, traveling? 
why am I doing this? Do I really need these things that I was stretching for before? Is it really serving me? And as people change their opinion and they're, they're going, you know, I don't want to work these crazy hours. I want to do something. I want to have a life. I don't want to have a work-life balance. I want to have a life-work balance. Hmm. That is going to change what we buy. So I'll give you just a tiny example to finish. I think art is always super interesting to watch because the artists are literally the radar of society and they always yeah. spot trends before anybody else. And I think we've been buying art for not just consumption, but uh, for investment purposes, right? The famous artists are all judged by what's the value of the painting. But what if now people start to say, well, I just want to own a piece of art because it's beautiful because it sings to me and makes me happy or even better rather than consuming what if i create art what if i spend a certain amount of my time making art instead of buying it well now you're buying artists equipment you are you creating jobs for people who make paint yes you are mm. so you know it, the the demand for the work is going to change based on our attitude to whether are we consuming are we creating? And I just think we're coming into a more creation-oriented, less consumption-oriented period of history in the world economy. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. And I, and I think you are as well. I think, um, again, I keep referencing this interview, but I was talking with uh, Jeff last week and there's kind of this, um, there, there are two ways to look at the different millennial generation of which I am a part. Uh, but one is to say, because people do talk a lot about um, oh, well, millennials prefer experiences over material things, right? There's also an argument to be made that millennials are less capable of affording things uh, yeah. from previous generations as well. Uh, you know, something like, like we talked about housing before, it's like more unaffordable to own a house than it's ever been, yeah. you know, since like the 1930s or something like that. So like people yeah. who graduate in my generation don't think as much about owning a home. It seems like this unachievable kind of goal. Um, but I agree with you. I do think that overall, like when I think about what, what I want, what I would spend money on, you know, uh, it's travel. Um, it's travel is like the number one thing at the top of my list. So how does it like, even, you know, when my parents got married, my parents were high school sweethearts. Uh, you know, they got married when they were like 20, which sounds so crazy now. Um, but you know, they got like China, they got like fancy China. Even if you look at how homes were designed, there's a, uh, this smaller rooms, uh, and there was like a fancy dining room. Right? There was your fancy dining room where you had your china that you never used, never used, right? In case the president was coming to your house yeah, uh, and needed to be ready. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and now, I mean, look at how architecture has changed. It's like big, open living spaces, right? Because people just want to be more social and all that kind of stuff. It's crazy. Um, That's what I'm saying. We'll keep reinventing even physical space. Architecture, which is a different version of art, starts to inform and reflect uh, the changing lifestyle choices. Um, even the types of food, you know, people are like, oh, post COVID, all the restaurants will be gone and it'll take forever for them to come back. And actually, they're coming back quickly with new business models that are capitalized better and new ideas about what people want in terms of food. Like everything will benefit from imagination. And so this is why I come back to the, the most essential ingredient in recovery is not capital, it's mm -hmm. imagination. 
It is imagination. And there's fortitude. And actually, you know, I'll refer to it a third time. I loved listening to that interview with you and your dad, not just because there's like an adorable interview between father and daughter, but because you both brought so much historical perspective to things. And I will almost always default to just by my nature. I love reading about history uh, because when there's so many times I've been reading about history and I'm like, oh, my God, this situation is like you know, that happened however many hundred years ago is exactly like the situation that's happening today. And I am a subscriber to the philosophy that there's nothing new under the sun. Humanity has been around for a long time. We've probably done it before. We've probably forgotten about it, but there are great analogs. And the great thing about humanity overall is that we're very, we're not always the smartest, but we're a resilient bunch and we bounce back and we, over historical periods of time, we tend to underestimate that intangible yeah. element. Yeah. Totally. By the way, on this, um, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I do think that um, the economy and love have an enormous amount in common. Hmm. Because you ask, you know, how can people make such bad decisions and get caught up in the financial crisis? Surely they remember the tulip bubble. Surely they remember, you know, and name five other major financial crises. How can you get it wrong again? And then just substitute economy for love. How is it people fall in love with the wrong person over and over? And you can tell them, don't you remember? This is not the right kind of person. You had this experience before. No, they're not listening to any of that. And so that's why the economy is a lot like a love affair where you're going to do it, even though it might not be the right thing, because you have to learn the lesson yourself. History is no good in these contexts. History, you know, well, what happened to grandma when she went out with the wrong guy? Yeah, doesn't have any relevance to your life today. And it's the same, tulip bubble. Yeah, what? that's not really relevant to today. Mm -hmm. We have to I, learn our own lessons over and over. Totally agree. And if you get back to the biological root of learning, people, the way, the way I got taught um, in, in school was there are different types of learning and humans have this special type of learning distinct from every other animal where it's called intuitive learning and by our logic we can learn things. Every other animal learns from one way, stimulus and response. You get a stimulus, your body produces a response. I personally don't think that humans learn differently from any other animal. I think we are also stimulus response, which means you learn whether you like it or not. The only way that you can really internalize something is through experience. Um, Absolutely. And there's one thing to know it happened 100 years ago, but if it hasn't happened to you, if your body hasn't produced that response, guess what? You're just not going to wait it the same totally, way. Totally, yeah. totally. And, um, and also, we're always constantly limited by our belief systems. Um, I remember when the financial crisis was beginning to unfold and I was at the time, you know, it's so rare that I'm really negative. Like I, I, things have to be seriously bad for me to be going sell everything. But at that time I was for about a year before the crisis happened. And, uh, and I remember talking to some of the, the traders that I was dealing with at the time. And I was like, it's not just that you need to sell what's in the portfolio. You need to ask the question whether the financial institution you work for is going to survive this. And they were like, what? What do you mean? I'm like, like the bank could fail. And they're like, that's so mind blowing. And then Lehman failed, right? And then actually all the banks failed at the same time. The idea was so overwhelming, they couldn't process it. It was like, what? Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And today, this is the same sort of thing. We should really try to think about what beliefs have we got that we hold to be unutter uh, unassailable truths that aren't actually, you know, which comes back to your, one of your earlier questions about, you know, debt and how do we deal with it. I do think we're beginning to see, um, uh, no one likes it when I say this, but defaults. Okay, they're nice defaults. They're organized. Um, they're called haircuts or they're called um, renegotiated outcomes. Like we call them much nicer things. But fundamentally, the, they're defaults. Um, mm -hmm. Student loans is one of the areas. And whenever you get defaults, um, it's terrible for the investors, no question. But yeah. it does reset the story so that you can start again. And um, eventually, when debt gets too big, that's what happens. The system starts to default on itself, and there's a scrambling around, and then you kind of start again with a better, less precarious base. Yeah, absolutely. Pippa, actually, I've heard you describe um, there's this great kind of an, uh, like post savings and loan crisis um, and some of the restructuring that happened after that. You, I heard you describe it so well. Would you mind just telling that story for the listeners? Because I've learned a lot from it. Oh, well, uh, I was very lucky um, because, um, uh, oh, now I'm going to flake. The guy who was um, running the government institution that oversaw the savings and loan crisis. Um, and he'd been around for years and years. He was already an older guy. And when I was in the White House, he spent some time with me. And um, he was just like describing to me what happened. So, you know, you have a record amount of debt. All of a sudden, it's all underwater. Uh, it's all these banks and savings and loans have been... Um, lending to like golf courses and so suddenly all these golf courses and nobody wants to buy them right there are thousands of them for all for sale at once and how did they actually handle it they had to go and hire like ten thousand um people with accounting skills and mm. they just threw parts of this portfolio at you and said see see what you can do to come up with a number the market will buy this at and they were just selling things for pennies on the dollar. And eventually they oversaw the shift of the ownership from the old owners to the new owners. Mm -hmm. The new owners got a great deal because you could buy a golf course for like five bucks, like mm -hmm. literally for nothing. Now the old owner lost a lot of money, uh, but the new owner was able to hire people and put it back to work really quickly. So the, again, the job creation um, became very rapid. And yeah. so the clearing mechanism, that's fundamentally, usually the market is its own clearing mechanism, but sometimes when everything hits the wall at once, government needs to come and help create a clearing mechanism for the assets to shift from the old owners to the new ones. And that's why bailouts are so um, arguably damaging because they prevent the ownership of the asset from changing hands. So the right. old investor who didn't manage it well and doesn't have any capital more to put into the thing gets to keep it. And the person who would have loved to buy that hotel for 20 cents on the dollar and would have put it to work and hired people and made it grow, they don't get the chance. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Uh, and then I know I've already impinged uh, enough on your time here, but like last, last question I have for you here um, is, do you think that um, we're headed for a situation like that in the U.S. right now? Like I, I know a lot of it does depend on your kind of imagination and, and all that sort of stuff, but the level of debt, do you think most of them, these are like good debts that don't need to be restructured and generally the owners can keep it and we can improve things? Or do you think there does need to be some sort of reorganization basically in change of hands? Uh, I, there's always a need for the reorganization change of hands and it's happening. The question is uh, how systematically and kind of at what level, in what mm -hmm. sectors, what areas. I mean, we can see in Europe in the last decade, there's been lots of restructuring. The whole country, the whole nation of Greece uh, announced a haircut, which was effectively a default. Mm -hmm. um, I hate calling it that, but effectively that's what happened. And then Athens has become one of the hottest tech centers in Western Europe as a result. Same in Portugal. Uh, it's happening in particular areas. Like I said, the government is now focused on student loans. And, you know, I've always thought it was really onerous that student loans couldn't be defaulted on under any circumstances. So you were liable for life. And we have very few debts that are like that. Um, and so it's about time that something was done about that. Uh, and now, again, that in conjunction with COVID has meant that lots of young people are going, well, do I want to go to university at all anyway? Yeah. And so they're not. And then that's a really controversial point. Is that good or is that bad? Is it good that a whole generation of young people are now going to go out in the world, probably travel, um, have a whole range of different jobs that they catch as they move from A to B? Is that a better or worse education than four years of an academic institution? You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in formal education. I have a PhD, but I have to say, I think there's a value in throwing yourself out into the world and having the school of life teach you as well. And, and now we have lifelong learning as well. It's no longer going to be four years. It's going to be throughout your whole life. You'll keep going back and learning new skill sets, studying in different contexts. So, I, you know, maybe this is a good thing that we're seeing innovation caused by circumstances in education. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Pippa, thank you so much. You've been really generous with your time. If people want to find out more about you or when you're ready to talk more about this startup that you're involved in, like what's the best way for them to follow you, learn a little bit more? Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter under at Dr. Pippa M because nobody can pronounce or spell Malmgren. The Swedish. <laughs> and, yeah, Swedish, exactly. Too many uh, consonants. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I have a web page, uh, Um And those are probably the two best ways. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Pippa. I'm excited uh, to see you very soon at our conference in, in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, uh, three weeks away. So that'll be a ton of fun. And thanks for doing this. I had a great time, learned a lot. Me too. Thank you. Thanks, Pippa. See you later.